This is OTB Sports Radio. But I do remember very vividly standing in the shower after the All-Ireland Final Centre for Egan McCusker. Is this it? Is this it? Desolate almost, like a sense of total anticlimax. And the two of us wandered up to the cat and cage and had a pint. In those days, there was no big formalities. I can remember thinking, I can feel it now when I'm sitting here, that sense of anticlimax, which was a great lesson in life. Once it's behind you, you just you move on. Off the ball, Saturdays from 1 on OTB Sports Radio. Listen live on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. Well, fans can be the harshest critics, you know. Uh, they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochard has never spoken to Jim McGuinness in his life. Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five o'clock. We're streaming the conversation as well now, so as well as listening on News Talk, you can watch us on the Off the Ball social channels for Periscope on Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. If you haven't downloaded that already, please do so by searching OTB Sports in your app store. This is the Saturday panel. A lot of people say to themselves, I'd love to run a marathon. Maybe one day I'll run a marathon. Have you run a marathon? What's your experience? Would you like to? Maybe you've run countless Dublin marathons or maybe even further afield. To get an insight into the art of marathon running, we're just absolutely thrilled to be joined by three Olympians, three people who've competed at the top of world sport over the next hour to just get their insights, their stories, their advice, probably most importantly. We're delighted to be joined by John Tracy, Olympic silver medalist from 1994, Los Angeles Marathon and CEO of the Irish Sports Council. Cork's Lizzie Lee, a former European cross-country team gold medal winner, and a runner in the marathon in Rio, the last Olympics in 2016. And Sonia Sullivan, the former world champion, 5,000 meters runner, who won the Dublin Marathon in 2000, just after claiming silver at the Sydney Olympics that same year. John, Lizzie and Sonia, how are you all doing? Very good. Mighty. Cork and Waterford here, no monster hurling now, slagging over the next uh, hour. <laughs> marathon running, the do's and don'ts. Lizzie Lee, the organizers of the bank holiday uh, Dublin Marathon are hopeful. They're cautiously optimistic. They said this week that they're going to hold it. They'll know a bit more in June. Like, hopefully we'll be all vaccinated by then. Um, but somebody who's never run a marathon before, what are the do's and don'ts in terms of preparation, diet, nutrition, all of these things that comes to getting yourself ready to run a marathon? Wow, that's a big one. Um, so I would start with um, a plan. And usually it's a, a 12 to 16 week plan. There are tons of them online, but Dublin Marathon themselves always put out schedules. What I love about the Dublin Marathon is they have the race series. So you can, and I did it myself as a newbie runner in 2006. I was only just starting to run. I was being coached by Maria McCambridge and Gary Crossan. And um, I did the race series during the summer. Um, and I was just doing triathlons and, you know, fun, really fun running. And I found the structure of building up to the marathon by doing the race series really good to keep me focused and keep me motivated throughout the summer. So 
the, the first one would be find a, a good plan, a good coach, an athletics club, or just a group because, and now we're allowed training groups of 15 again in, in a few days. Um, accountability is, the, is really one of the big principles of training. So if you have arranged to meet even one person and you have that date in your diary for that you've a roadmap to get you to the marathon and you have the plan, you're much more likely to concede to succeed than just going out for a run every Sunday with you know no watch and no real plan as to what you're doing, which is enjoyable. But if you want to do a marathon, you have to have your homework done or it'll be grim. So the real preparation is about the long term. Well, what am I, what's my goal and how am I going to get started? Um, and really experts, there's experts all over the country. There's groups, athletic clubs all over the country. Go to your local one, find somebody. Everybody knows somebody <laughs> who runs and that person will know more than you do about marathon running. They mightn't be an expert, but they'll know more and they'll know where to go and who to talk to to just get started in terms of that long, that, that, that goal plan uh, for October Bank Holiday Weekend. John, is there an art to this, as Lizzie's saying, this 26 miles to run a marathon? Um, my advice to anyone that's planning on running a marathon, think about it and think about it again. And if you're really convinced you want to do it, <laughs> then put a plan together. <laughs> um, uh, what, what I basically say is this, is it's one foot in front of the other. Uh, there's no, there's no great uh, theory behind it. Uh, it's just putting one foot in front of the other as effectively and efficiently as possible, right? And obviously, the training that you put in, and, and Lizzie outlined it in terms of following the plan, is that it's all about the training. Uh, you, there's one thing you'd say about marathon: you can't bluff marathon running, right? You could get away with a 10k, you could get away with a 5k, you won't get away with a marathon. Uh, a marathon distance it could catch up with you and uh, you don't go into it half-baked or or carrying an injury you have to be in absolutely perfect shape to get around and and meet your objective for your goal or whatever it is uh, like i used a kind of basis in terms of preparing for a marathon and it was planned a year in advance that was the kind of that was a program that I was working for all the time. And it involved a huge commitment. Uh, like all of us were 5K, 10K uh, runners in our day or whatever, right? And you'd, 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 um, you, if, you, if you missed out or you had a poor run, you had another opportunity in a couple of weeks later. In the marathon, it's all or nothing. It really is all or nothing. And it's, it's in a 5K or a 10K, uh, you're putting your training in and you'd almost always be positive in terms of how in terms of how what your time would be for a 5k or a 10k based on how your training is going but in a marathon anything can happen anything can happen you can just um, implode let's put it that way so it is about but most importantly, it's about putting in the work without a shadow of a doubt. There's no, there's no, uh, you have to put in the work. You have to work hard. You have to have the discipline. You have to have everything that goes with it. Uh, I couldn't agree more than Lizzie in terms of do it with people and, and train with people. It makes it training a lot more fun, a, a lot more, a lot more enjoyable. And uh, that was a key piece for me in terms of where I was training at the time, which is, in, which is around Providence, Rhode Island, or Phoenix, Arizona. There was always people to run with, and that just made things easy. And I was one of the people that, you know, in terms of training for 
a marathon, uh, there was days where you'd run reasonably easy and there was days you would really walk hard and the track workouts and everything that goes with that. So uh, when you're training at, at world level, you're, you're actually putting in a lot of quality, a lot of quality track sessions, a lot of, a lot of tempo runs while really doing, doing the work and, and just putting in bags of miles and, and putting them into the legs and trying to then at the same time maintain your speed. Uh, for the 5k and 10k because I was always always believed if you're running well at 5k you run well at the 10k and if you run well at 10k you run a good marathon so it was all all that time trying to keep the sharpness at the same time and uh, the marathon does take its toll it just kind of knocks off that sharpness off you uh, and it, if you do one more it just knocks off another little bit of sharpness so it takes a while to recover so the, the, I suppose if anyone is out there thinking about training for a marathon is, is, is plan carefully, listen to your body. Uh, the body doesn't lie to you. It will tell you if, it's, 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 if you're walking too hard and then you have to have the, uh, the flexibility to back off and just say, I'll take one more day before I go hard. So it is about a lot of, a lot of listening to your body, but actually taking the guidance as well and just making sure you're not overreaching all the time. Uh, a lot of us would probably probably say, uh, certainly we regret it uh, doing one more walkout because it backfired on us. But we kind of never regretted taking one, one extra day rest. And I think yeah. that's a kind of something that we can all learn from as well. Uh, when in doubt, run easy. That was always my mantra. And then you'd be ready to go hard again the next day. So it's about planning, planning well, but it's, it is really uh, about working extremely hard if you yeah. want to get the best out of yourself. You've all progressed, uh, Lizzie, from uh, cross-country to the Olympics. John, yourself, mm -hmm. twice cross-country world champion to the track to the Olympics and marathon. Sonia, yourself, you progressed as well. As we all know, such a brilliant track athlete. What John has said there and what Lizzie said, do you concur with it? Your advice, your experience of marathon running? Yeah, I agree with everything that John and Lizzie say. And, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a, a true marathon runner. I think, um, you know, it was one of those things I was around at the time when people kind of thought you got to a certain stage in your track running and then it was time to move on to the marathon. And, you know, at the time, you know, I would have been running lots of long runs in training and it didn't seem like it was that much different training that you would do. And I probably didn't do enough different training to really, you know, be as good as I possibly believe myself that I should have been at the marathon. I didn't train properly for it. Um, it was only because it's a very specific level of training that you have to do. Like the long runs are really, really important. But then even more important is doing long runs at the marathon pace and the pace that you expect to run. Um, so, you know, I think when I ran the marathon in 2015 in Dublin, that was my best experience of running a marathon. And I was only running, you know, for, for fun and just for enjoyment. And I had set myself out a program and I, it was the first time I really understood what it took to train for a marathon. And that was at the level I was at then, not at like a, a high level. And I think that's what people have to do is you have to be realistic with the level that you're at and you have to train at the level that you're at rather than the, the level that you'd like to be at. And, you know, we'd all love to break three hours for the marathon every time we go out there, but it's not realistic. And, you know, you have to train realistic. And if you don't tra train realistic, then you're not going to get to the start line. 
So you really have to be patient and take your time and not worry about, you know, the thousands of people that are going to be around you on the start line. You have to think about what you can do, not what they're doing. Um, it was different for John and Lizzie, you know, when you're competing to try and win a marathon, then what you, what you know you can do can be changed and dictated by others because, you know, you need to keep up as well and you want to be in the competition. But if you're just out there and you want to do the distance, you want to enjoy it, then the more prepared you are, the better you will enjoy the experience. And, you know, I had a fantastic time in Dublin in 2015, just, you know, running comfortably within myself and then also you know experiencing the crowds and the people cheering that kind of gives you a bit of a boost and it allows you to run a bit better than you expect um but you know the key is to enjoy it and it's going to get hard at some point but you know you want to push that out as long as possible and so don't go too fast at the start and be patient and you know just you know take your time is, is the key with the marathon your experience in Rio then in 2016, Lizzie, you're 36 years of age. You've already given birth. Uh, it's hot. It's uh, a, a race with Fanula McCormick and uh, Breege as well. Connolly, you had it with you as well in the race from Ireland. How did it go? What were your emotions like? What were you thinking during the marathon? Oh, just get to the finish line. Um, it was <laughs> roasting. So we were unfortunate because the men actually, I don't know if anyone remembers, Meb um, fell over the finish line. He slipped because it was so wet. It was cold. We were on a week before and it was roasting. It got up to 33, 34 degrees, but it was 92% humidity. So um, the way I would treat anything is control the controllables, right? So there's certain things that were going to be out of, outside of my control for Rio, for example. And one of them was the heat. I couldn't control the weather on the start line, but I could control my, my response to it. I could do my homework around it. And that's the real big thing about the marathon. And John said it, he nailed it. You get found out in the marathon. Every little thing gets so... Um, Fortunately, Trevor Woods, the physiologist in UCC, was amazing. And we did loads of heat preparation, you know, weighing me before and afterwards, running in a heat chamber, this kind of thing. And um, so I had exactly, I knew for 33 degrees, the pace I was going to do. I knew what I had to drink, when I had to drink, how much I had to drink. And um, I was 110th through 10 miles in the marathon in Rio. And I came 56th. And I didn't speed up from 10 miles to the finish line. I actually, in and around, maintained my pace. But the other girls that I passed hadn't done that preparation. A lot of them, much better runners than I ever would be. Um, but in particular, I remember a Spanish girl collapsing at about mile 15. Um, and she just hadn't drunk enough. That was it. So part of the marathon is you have to be prepared. Um, so when I got to that finish line, I think because I had put so many years into it, because I tried to go to London and I had failed miserably at that. And when I then we got married, I had the baby. There was this big, long roadmap to get to, to Rio. And, um, and then I had to contend with the heat of the day. And to get to the finish line was without doubt one of the best feelings of my whole entire life, probably the best. And see, Sonia and John are here at, talking to a different level that I was... In. I was there to get to that finish line, to become an Olympian at the finish line. John and Sonia were competing for medals when they went to the Olympics. Um, I'm at the other end where full-time working mom just actually wanted to get to the finish line and become an Olympian. Um, and I think you can be proud of 
all of the Absolutely. above, you know, um, and I certainly, I ran 2.39.57 in Rio and Trevor told me if it was 33 degrees that to 2.40, that's what was my target. So like, I know I got the best out of myself on the day and it was only that evening when I was having drinks in the pub, mm. Donny, Georgina Drum, friends, family, parents, everybody. And someone said to me, God, what were you going to do if you didn't finish? Like, and I just went, that just didn't even go through my head because I couldn't let that go through your head. So one of the things of the marathon is talk to those gremlins out loud and say, this is not going to happen. I am going to get to the finish line. I've done my homework. I've controlled the things I can control. I've practiced wearing all the gear. Um, Enda Fitzpatrick met me for my last 22 miler in Spain and I was dripping in the Irish gear. And we practiced the bottles and everything before I flew out to, to Brazil because you, you go to that level of detail. You, you wear the socks, you wear the runners, you, you practice the bottles, you practice the, you, you, everything so that nothing is to chance because you can't bluff a marathon. You just can't. Talking to yourself, Sonia, did you talk to yourself <laughs> much in a, in a 5,000 meter Olympic final in Sydney versus talking to yourself in a Dublin marathon? Um, I did. <laughs> I mean, in the marathon, you have to be very disciplined, you know, and you have to hold yourself back. I think in the uh, 5,000 meters, you have to be a bit more alert and you have to be able to react to whatever's going on around you. And uh, there, there was a moment there in um, Sydney where I think I fell asleep and the leaders kind of got a little bit away from me and um, I had to wake myself up. And, you know, that, it's a bit like if you're out for John Tracy, he'll notice. If you're out for a bike ride sometimes and you're riding along, and somebody comes past you, they kind of wake you up, you know, and then you think, geez, I better get going here. <laughs> and you get, pick up the pace again. So I think what happened to me was um, Joe Pavey was in front of me and I had raced against her a lot and, you know, rarely would she beat me. And I thought, hang on a second, what's going on here? And all of a sudden I thought, I got to get myself back into this again. And, you know, you can forget what's going, you can be distracted by a lot of things in an Olympic final. You know, there's a lot going on around you and I had to re-engage with the race and get myself back into the position so that I was, you know, where I needed to be when it came to one lap to go. And, um, you know, it, it all happens very quickly. Um, I, I don't think it happens so quickly in the marathon. You know, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of thinking time there. I mean, for me, the marathon, I think the thing I liked the most was the training. The training was fantastic and just getting ready. And I, every time I stood on the start line and I did, I think I did six marathons. Um, every time I stood in the start line, I would question myself and think, why am I doing this? You know? oh. And I had to remind myself that, you know, you trained for this and you wanted to do this. So, you know, get out there and do it now and, you know, take responsibility of getting a result out of, you know, all the hard work that I've put in and all the, you know, family and friends and coaches who've been there and helped me and supported me like you owe it to them as much as to yourself to, to go out there and to, to deliver a result um i was watching your marathon from 84 john on youtube a few months ago and i was thinking of all the people back in ireland back in the mid 80s when it wasn't the the wealthiest country in the world looking at this exotic mm. los angeles and it was a complete leap into the unknown for you john because it was your first marathon it was, uh, it was, but uh, again, uh, Lizzie touched upon it. The, the homework was done. Uh, I, I had, had been kind of secretly training for the marathon uh, all winter long. And um, 
Uh, I'll just tell you a couple of stories about it. Sure. Uh, probably around May before the Olympic Games, I had, um, I had, um, I, I went to a half marathon and a very hilly course around 65 minutes and then kept going for until 20 miles. So I was kind of preparing myself. I was doing the long runs. And again, as Lizzie said, it was a very hot, hot uh, Los Angeles. But I, I had been in Rhode Island as, as um, during the summer and it was really extremely hot in Rhode Island during that summer. And I was out running my 25 mile runs, my 26 mile runs. Uh, my 29 mile run uh, was done over 90 degrees the whole the, the, the whole way so it was the preparation in terms of getting acclimatized and I had a, a bunch of runners that helped me in terms of those some would do maybe the first 18 miles and then someone would jump in and do the last 10 miles with me so I had I had colleagues that were willing to to train with me and and, and do it in in ungodly hours so that we could get the get the training done. So it's a very much a team effort, but it was really around preparation and preparation. And uh, when uh, again Los Angeles went out to the starting line that day, uh, it was very hot and like we ju I just sheltered before the race, and um, you know the the race starts off and. Uh, we talk about it is the first water stop is the most important and the second most important water stop is the second water stop so really I kind of worked on that basis get as much water into you as you possibly can take uh, uh, early on and keep the body temperature down and that's that was the that was where we where we worked at. and then really I found myself uh, up uh, around 10 miles with the leaders without really any any great effort because I was used to running quicker, much quicker per mile than the marathon pace. So that, the, the, the track uh, times that I had done in, the, in, the, in that summer had, had, had stood to me. And, and then when the real race progressed into, into 18 miles, 20 miles, and the pace kicked up, picked up, I, I was ready for it. But then it was just kind of grin and bear it and put yourself through it. And uh, it was for me going into that race, it was, it was going to be medal or nothing. And that was, that was the way I approached the race. Uh, I was either not going to finish or I was going to get a medal. That was simple as that. And I was willing to put myself on the line. But I, I, had, the, I had the confidence and I had the training done. I was ready for the heat and I was ready for the heat of battle. Psychologically, I was ready for it as well. And that's, a, that's an important piece. And uh, so, look, all the pieces fell into play and and it worked out extremely well for, for me on the day and of course um, Jerry Kiernan was in that race as well and had an absolutely phen phenomenal run a phen phenomenal run and I think we've all re kind of relive relived that race this year because of the passing of Jerry and I certainly did uh, I went back and looked looked at looked at the race again myself and I hadn't done it for quite some time and you know just to think about Jerry and and talk about what he had done in that particular day and had produced his most uh, exceptional and outstanding run of his career on the biggest day of his career. And I can, I think, okay, both of us did it on, on that day, but it is something that's a great testimony to the training that Jerry was able to put in as well. And he was training in California at the time, uh, uh, leading into that. So it's, it's, it's fantastic when a plan comes together. And Lizzie said it, uh, you walk away from the finish line and you know you can't give one more inch 
of energy, right? And that's when you know you have to be satisfied with what you achieved. And I, I remember a week after uh, the Los Angeles uh, Olympic medal, going for, try, trying to go for a run, and I actually couldn't run. And I literally, for the first time, I, I walked back after 200 yards and just laughed, right? But I had, in essence, just ran myself to a standstill. And that's what you really want to achieve when you face that uh, that big, big race in your career. And I, I was fortunate that, I, that I, had, I, I was able to do that on that particular day. Just speak about Jerry there, John. He was your friend. He was your, uh, I, I remember reading that you ran up the Dublin mountains. He yeah. won two Dublin marathons himself a, a decade apart. He, he really made such a huge impact on many people's lives. He did. He did, and I, I just maybe I was living in Dublin in the early eighties, and and uh, we had the house in Dundrum, and we used to meet on a Sunday morning, uh, and there used to be about twenty of us meeting over over Marley Park, and we we take off up the Dublin mountains, and uh, we do twenty miles. Uh, uh, you go straight up. That kind of a run wasn't for, as I said, the faint-hearted. Uh, but ran away, ran at a good pace, and everyone kind of stayed in there. But um, it was it was it was it was just it was just done. It was enjoyable. It was done. It was done with a great bunch of guys at the time, and uh, so I got to know Jerry very well during that period of time. And then I went back to the states to for to train for the Olympic Games and train full time. And um, uh, it's just I, I suppose we we've always come together. Uh, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the marathon as well with Dick Hooper and 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 Jerry in my house with with some friends, and that was a that was a very special occasion for me, uh, and I hope for the two two guys as well because we were great teammates. We had great team managers around us, and uh, team people that were there to help and assist us and get us through it. And I, I suppose I, what I've always said. And I've always met loads of people that, and students and pupils that um, were taught by Jerry. And to a pupil and to a parent, they said he was the most outstanding teacher they ever came across. So he gave his heart and soul to his pupils and then, of course, his athletes that he trained. He put everything into them as well and was totally and utterly committed uh, to his athletes that he trained and hugely dedicated and I think we all heard Kira McGee speak about him and and the emotion in Kira when she spoke about him and uh, and the love she had for him and and uh, and and that, that filtered right down to all the athletes that I met after Jerry's passing uh, they just couldn't speak highly enough about him uh, a great man and totally and utterly committed and uh, he kept us all amused in terms of his stories. And uh, he was very well read, very well read. And you could have, you could have a conversation with Jerry on anything. Yeah, you shared a studio with him, uh, Sonia. He was a coach, he was a, an educator, and he, he was very authentic. Um, yeah, and you know, he brought his work uh, to the studio as well. And you know, he showed us all how to prepare and how to be ready to, to work on TV. Um, but it wasn't all serious and it was always, you know, a bit of fun and laughter there. And, you know, it's something that I suppose made my time working with RT, covering all the Olympics and world championships and European championships. It was something I always look forward to. And uh, I love to share the, 
um, panel with Jerry. You know, whenever we were on there, you, you knew that we were going to have good fun. And, um, you know, you, you kind of wish sometimes that the people at home could see the laughs that you had because oftentimes when Jerry was talking, it was very serious and intense because he had all the detail and the facts and the figures. But um, there was a lot of fun behind that. We need people like that in our corner when we talk about our own sports like athletics. You need people like Jerry, that he was, he was great ambassador for the sport, is he? Oh, absolutely. I, I shared a studio with him twice for European cross country um, championships. He'd arrive with his notes and he had, he knew everything. He knew all the favourites and, and I remember um, being, being coached to go on live with him to say, you know, don't be afraid to challenge him because you had such respect for him that uh, you, you'd, you'd, you'd kind of go, oh, maybe I'm a bit wrong. But you could, you could if it was about athletics, he, he'd engage in that conversation and he would be, well, no, I don't think, well, do you think? And he'd just always, he wanted to talk. He loved athletics. I mean, it was everything to him. He just adored it and he was so passionate and he was honest. And to that point, Obviously, I've been away on championships with John Travers, Kieran McGean. I mean, and they couldn't speak more highly enough about Jerry um, and, and, and just his complete passion for athletics and for, for people. He, you often hear stories about him um, that he would care just as much about getting somebody under four hours as he would about his 2.30, marathon or runner. And that's a real coach. It's somebody who just wants to get the best out of, out of their athlete. And as Sonia said, you would have the crack with him. But when it came to the on-screen bit, you know, he, he, he got serious because athletics was so important to him. But I'll never forget Sean Tobin coming in in the top 10 in the European cross country uh, this is two or three years ago. And he had been a bit miserable because the races beforehand, we, our favourite Sarah Healy had fallen and he was really upset about that. And, and then Sean Tobin came in with this magnificent run and he just, he was actually just speechless because he was so happy that the man from Clonmel had done good, you know, um, because that's what he cared about was Irish athletics. Just before we go to the break, what happened then after these uh, silver medal uh, in Los Angeles, John, was there much of a, Hooli back here in Ireland, were, were you fated? What happened uh, immediately after and in the days and weeks? Well, yeah, we, we, well, I was, I was out of the country for five days and then I, I came back to parades in, 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 in Waterford and uh, in, in Verostown and Monaghan and you name it, there was parades, uh, even in Ace, I was passing through. So I was, I was hijacked a few times and, and it's, I, I suppose, they're not circumstances where I'm particularly comfortable, right? I prefer to go away and enjoy the medal on my own, really. But I, you do appreciate, like, it is something you're doing for your country and you're doing for your county and you're doing for your community as well, right? Uh, so, uh, and I, I suppose uh, they're things you kind of, I kind of put up with them more, more than embrace them. And, uh, but that's, that was just my personality. Uh, but look, it was it was great. It was a great time, and uh, certainly look back on those years, years in a very fun, 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 fun way. And um, I suppose the the piece around it is is really is that look, we look back now over however many years it is, and just kind of appreciate what we had in that short period in our lives, and um, uh, to be able to go out and compete 
against the best in the world and sometimes succeed was 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 fantastic to have that uh, in your lives. And look, I suppose we reflect on it now uh, in terms of when the career is over and we're doing other things. And um, look, I can certainly remember very well where I was for Sonia's silver medal. And it's itched on my mind forever, right? I, I was in the stadium in Sydney and it, it was it's itched in my mind in terms of the emotion that I went through watching Sonia in that race. And when she was at the back of the field, I was having a heart failure. Now, Sonia, you were giving us heart failure. Come on, right? Uh, <laughs> and I was having a heart failure and I was beside a person and I had their arm grabbed, right? And I didn't let it go. And the, the lady I was sitting beside, and I knew her, she was black and blue after I was finished that race, <laughs> right? So that was, that was, um, that was just the, the emotion we all go through. And I remember seeing Lizzie as well in Rio and, and, and the conditions after that. And you kind of feel for, you feel for, your, for, for your fellow athletes and you feel for what they, what they go through. And you'd always be in a city and you'd be looking at the marathon and you'd be looking at the temperature. This is the kind of the mind of the athlete going. You'd be saying, oh, my God, they're not going to go out of that. But they do it and they're resilient and they put in fantastic performances like Lizzie, like, like, like Lizzie did. Sonia, do you remember what happened immediately after you won that silver medal in Sydney? Um, <laughs> you do, but it kind of gets lost sometimes. I think um, beforehand you try and you don't really think about what you're going to do afterwards. And I, I didn't practice, you know, <laughs> what was going to happen if there was success or failure. It was one of those things where I got to the point, it was my third Olympics and I was determined that I was going to be happy with the result no matter what. And then when you finish second, you kind of have that little inkling in your mind for a few seconds thinking, shit, what if I won? <laughs> you know, I knew what, what, you know, you kind of think, you know, could I have been happier? And, um, you know, I had to, you know, weigh things up and realize that, you know, there comes a time when, you know, yes, you have to be happy with silver because, you know, these opportunities only come around once every four years. And you know, not everybody is in the position to, you know, be rewarded and to take home any silverware. So, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a bit surreal afterwards because you're in the stadium and, all the people that you want to be with, you can't really be close to them because they're up in the stands or they're outside. And, you know, it was about four hours later, midnight, by the time I got to meet up with my parents who came out. And even at that stage, they were with Father Liam Kelleher, who's a massive supporter of athletics down through the years from, from when I was really young. And um, they were on one side of a fence and I was on the other. So we couldn't even hug or anything, you know, it was kind of, you know, you could just about touch and, you know, show the medal and stuff like that. And so it wasn't really until the next day that we got together because of the way things turned out, you know, we just couldn't get together. You know, it's like that when you're in, I suppose, when you're in the Olympics, the accredited people are on one side of the fence and the unaccredited are on the other. And you don't always plan how you're going to meet up afterwards. And my coach, Alan Story, he was staying with us in the house um, outside of the village and um, so we got to go and uh, have a beer with him later on that night and I remember I went to bed and you know put the medal under my pillow and uh, when you wake up the next day you're kind of like half afraid to check is it still there or not <laughs> <laughs> yeah like the tooth fairy it is there <laughs> yeah yeah and then that's when it that's when it's really real you know when you know it's still there the next day and you get to carry it around and 
you know, explain it and try and relive the moment. Because sometimes we look back and you watch the race on TV and then it gets a bit confusing, you know, what you really thought about it and what you experienced and, you know, how you see other people describe it. Um, so, um, but, you yeah, know, it was definitely, you know, one of the best races I ever ran. Um, you know, I suppose there was a point where I was nearly losing it and then I had to rescue myself and to put myself back in the position again where I knew that, you know, I could, you know, be there to, to race for a medal. Well, we have to take a break. We're back with more chat on the Saturday panel about the Art of Marathon running and more besides with John Tracy, Sonia O'Sullivan and Lizzie Lee after this. The Saturday panel on Off The Ball. Well, you're welcome back to Off The Ball Saturday here on News Talk, where this week's panel is about the art of marathon running. Streaming the conversation as well now, so as well as listening on News Talk, you can listen to us on the social channels for Off The Ball, for Periscope on Twitter, Out Off The Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Delighted to be in the company of three legends of Irish sport, Olympians. John Tracy, Olympic silver medal winner from 1984 Los Angeles Marathon and CEO of the Irish Sports Council. Cork's Lizzie Lee, 2016 marathon runner in Rio and European cross-country gold team medal winner. And Sonia Sullivan, silver medalist at the Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000 and a winner of the Dublin Marathon and obviously as well the world champion at 5,000 metres from 1995. Uh, just John Tracy, when it does go the other way, when it goes wrong, what's it like when it hits the wall? When you hit the wall in a marathon, is it the case that the brain and the body are not in conjunction whatsoever? Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. I... Um... Uh, I, I, if you, I suppose if you're talking about the marathon going wrong, it probably would go back to the Boston Marathon, probably around 1990, uh, when, when I was coming off the hills and I was in third place and I actually, I was within 20 yards of the leaders and I actually said to myself, I've got it, I've got it in the bag. And then five yards later, you're holding your hamstring, right? And that's the kind of shock and terror of the marathon uh, uh, you get yourself in absolute terrific shape and it all goes wrong for you and um, and and that went back into a session that i had done maybe six six weeks prior in albuquerque new mexico and just went one extra one extra quarter and just did myself a bit of damage that came back and caught me out in the marathon so you know there's 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 those moments and you know that kind of moment and that race broke my heart it did really and truly I, I always wanted to win Boston and I was toured twice and I really wanted to win it and I felt that day it was there for me to take and it was snatched away and it was my it was my hometown race I had I had lived there for 10 years in the, in the Boston area and I really did want to win it but it didn't happen and so but you're you. It, but it did take me a while to recover from that. Uh, it just did because it was such a deep disappointment for me. And you kind of pick yourself up, and you you put your mind on on another race. And uh, the next year, I won the Los Angeles Marathon in Los Angeles itself. I went back to Los Angeles to win the Los Angeles Marathon. And and so there's occasions you, you just pick yourself up, and that's what we are. I think distance runners are resilient. You know, they know there's going to be a disappointment uh, around the corner. And I think when you get older, you, the disappointments come more, a little bit more frequent, right? <laughs> because you're not 20 anymore. You're not 25 anymore. You can't recover fairly quickly. You have to plan a lot more carefully and you have to respect your years. 
and and that's really when you do start pulling things and 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 pulling your hamstring like you, you know you'd be in your 30s when you're pulling your hamstring but age catch up catches up to to everyone and you just have to respect your body more and maybe rest it more and sometimes the mind might be in your 20s and the body is in your 30s and that's sometimes you run into trouble then when when that happens and so yeah you have your heartache and i had those heartaches uh, but you do pick yourself up and you get back on the horse again and off you go and uh, 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 you know there's always a kind of a, another race around the corner but the piece around the marathon is this you put you put six months of training in for a world-class performance and you know if you're tra training for the track you get 12 races right but in the marathon you get one shot and it can go horribly wrong on you and then it's six months of nothing really and truly without any any return so that's hard to take so marathon marathon running and com competition is not for the faint-hearted uh, you have to you have to be tough and resilient and when you get the knockout punch pick yourself back up again and get back out there and yeah lizzie you're nodding your head there when john was saying that. totally well i suppose it makes the, a wise man once told me he's in the corner <laughs> of the screen you've got about four or five really good marathons in you um <laughs> at, at the kind of elite level i'll never forget you said Watford. i hadn't even done a marathon and you said it to me in the Dungarvan 10. I had won the Dungarvan 10 and you were presenting the John Tracy Dungarvan 10 and you were presenting <laughs> the prizes and you literally stopped him at 20 during the marathon. Um, it would have been about 2011, I'd say. So I was trying to make London 2012 at the time. Um, I think you'll run more at the, this level, more marathons you're disappointed with than marathons you're happy with. But flip side of that is when the marathon goes right, it's so magnificently beautiful that <laughs> you just you can't even you can't describe the feeling you know, even during it um i think i've had i've i've probably had two two that i just just adored uh, one being berlin the, the time i qualified in 2015 i didn't enjoy rio because of the heat um but also Dublin 2018, I adored it. I, every minute, I was with the leaders going up Foster's Avenue. Um, I got on the podium. I mean, it was, it was, but Dublin is special as well, right? So to get it right in Dublin, you know, I, I had actual goosebumps turning, going down by, um, with, with a mile to go, going through Donnybrook and going through all, all that area because you know, I knew what it meant to the likes of Jim Ockney, Dick Hooper, my coach, Tony Walsh, who ran 1972 Olympic marathon was at the finish line waiting for me. And when you, I had had a bad, I had done actually an unprecedented thing. I had done the European championships that summer and been absolutely gutted and inconsolable at the finish line. Um, I had run, I think 240 and some change. It was a bit hot, but it just it was, a, it was a subpar run and I had been really upset. So Donny said, well, look, let's just, just go to Dublin because you've always wanted to do Dublin. So to turn it round in the kind of 10 week period is I've never done it since and I, I had never done it before and I got away with it. So, so I had the disappointment lodged in my brain of all of that. So then when it went right, it's just so superb. Uh, Brian Keane, who ran the triathlon in, um, competed in the triathlon in Rio, said to me once, um, when you're on that high, when you're on that podium, take it all in because those moments are so few and far between. 
that to get it all right when it all gels is just so worth all of the disappointment and you forget about it all. And I think with the marathon in particular, when you get it right, when you get that PB or that medal or that placing, it is just, you can't describe it. It's just like, you know, another, another place of euphoria. It's just brilliant. We're speaking to Lizzie Lee, John Tracy and Sonia Sullivan about the art of marathon running and obviously other issues in athletics. And you're coaching at the moment, Sonia, in the United States. I am, yes. I've uh, yeah, made a bit of a, a leap of faith here, I think, uh, to do something different. I think I was getting bored with you know, not being able to travel and go places. And then this opportunity opened up for me. So um, I'm helping out with a team out here. And we're at altitude at the moment, training in um, Park City in Utah and just up here a couple of days. So, John, you'll know all about that, those first few days of altitude. Mm. And I mm. was told yesterday that the first three days, um, you get that altitude high and you're so excited to be somewhere where it's nice for running and activity and you try and do everything and then you crash. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I've, I've had a good few days, but uh, the running is definitely tough up here. And, um, you know, a lot of marathon runners would use altitude training as part of their training to, to get really fit and strong, um, you know, in the, in the weeks leading up to a marathon. Um, but, you yeah, know, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of step back into the world of, you know, elite running and being there, you know, on the other side of the, I suppose the track really holding the stopwatch and, um, you know, athletes, there's a lot more knowledge and information out there now and different methods of training. Um, you know, a lot of it, you know, you still have to do the basics and, you know, put in the hard work, but, um, there's a lot more stuff out there now. And I think athletes are much more aware of the, the recovery is the big thing, um, to help them to get the best out of themselves. And I don't think, um, we all realize that. I don't know about John, but I definitely, you know, you push through a lot of stuff and you didn't have, you know, the recovery methods that are available to a lot of athletes or that they, they make available to themselves now so that they can get out there and train hard day in, day out and, um, you know, reach those high levels to be able to, there's more, like there's more, particularly female athletes, I think, competing at a higher level now, you know, the, the standard is increased greatly. And because of that, then we see even greater performances and, um, and results. So you have to be ready or you, you get lost. You know, you really do have to be as prepared as you can be. And yeah, all sites are firmly set on Tokyo. And I think with the recent announcement that, you know, all countries are going to be given vaccinations, I think that, you know, makes it even more realistic that things are, are going to happen in, in three months time, less than three months now. Something you'd welcome, John, as well, that news that came out this week from, um, with Pfizer and the IOC. Yeah, it's, it's great news. And um, uh, we're delighted uh, that Pfizer has stepped up and, and, and agreed to do that. And um, look, we, we would feel for our athletes because obviously uh, the athletes are going away to prepare uh, in other countries and race in other countries and they go to these environments where people are not as careful as 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 we are in Ireland and uh, we would have found that well, a number of athletes picked up COVID by, by going to uh, countries and picking it up and uh, again they're putting themselves at risk and uh, I suppose the big piece around this was this was that um, uh, the situation of an athlete going off unvaccinated to the Olympic Games and, 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 and picking it up while they're there and then they're out and everyone around them is out as well. So uh, we're delighted that a solution has been found to that because you'd hate to have an athlete 
put all that work in and have to withdraw from an event two days or three days beforehand. So uh, it's, it, it really is great news. It's great news for the athlete, athletes as well in terms, of, in terms of having to worry about it. Athletes are by nature are warriors, right? They worry about everything. We worry about everything when you're out competing. No, it's at least it's one less thing if they have the vaccination uh, that they, they don't have to have to worry. And of course, the backup team around them as well in terms of the physios and the medics as well. Uh, uh, and that's all good news. And obviously the officials as well, which is an important piece because uh, you want to make sure everyone is, is COVID free. And uh, it's great news. I would like. It seems like it's more likely to go ahead than, uh, than John than it was possibly a few weeks ago. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's all systems go now. And uh, the athletes, again, are resilient. They, they plan as if, if it's going ahead. Uh, the schedule in terms, of, in terms of qualification or qualifiers is being moved back all the time. So it's really, really a difficult time for the athletes and for the boxers or wherever you are, you're trying to get your qualifiers and you're trying to peak for a given day. And those dates keep, keep moving. Uh, and, you know, it just goes to show how, how difficult it is in COVID times, but they're resilient. They put their head down and they, they move on. And uh, it's fantastic that we have so many people qualified and, and continuing to qualify. And uh, fantastic to see our four by 400 team qualify uh, for the Olympic Games last weekend. And that was fantastic to watch uh, on television or on YouTube, I think it was on. So we all enjoy that. And it's, it's just fantastic that so many people are qualifying. But very importantly as well, uh, a lot more sports are qualifying with, with, with quality performances. And, uh, you know, that's the system operating and working. And, uh, uh, you know, more sports qualifying, more athletes getting the qualification. And we'll have, we'll have a sizable team and we'll have a large number of sports there as well. And, of course, the Paralympians as well, which is even more difficult. And, uh, obviously, the Paralympic athletes will be vaccinated as well. And that's, that's just fantastic news for everyone. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll have uh, medals in both the Olympics and the Paralympics uh, for Team Ireland. Just the issue of shoes, Lizzie Lee. Uh, Elliot Kipchoge, <laughs> right, he broke, um, I hope I haven't said anything wrong here. He broke two hours <laughs> for wearing these Nike Vaporfly shoes, right? <laughs> now they're banned for elite runners, but these are high-tech designs. They're, other ones are legal. Are these state-of-the-art shoes unfair for a race like the marathon? I don't know if I've opened a can of, can of worms here. Well, uh, yeah. There's about five different boxes on the other side of this room. So, um, look, every, every brand of, of shoe, everybody has come out with their new, their new version of this. So you can get them across. It, it started and it was just one. It was Nike, right? And they came out with the Vaporfly. And since then, all the other brands have come out. So the way I see it now is it's a level playing field because all of the brands are there and they're accessible to everybody now. At the start, they weren't and they weren't accessible to everybody. Um, like I've had, I could, I mean, so many long runs have been just dedicated to these shoes. Um, I actually only put on the new, the next percent for the first time ever about two weeks ago because I did a deal with myself after I had my baby that I wasn't allowed I had my husband got them for me for Christmas but I had a you know four week old I said I wasn't allowed to put them on till I was fit um, and between the pandemic and the small baby and the maternity leave anyway I put them on about two weeks ago and they're lovely <laughs> they're really comfortable <laughs> they're very nice and they're bouncy but what is it I easier found, is it easier 
what I have found, John, is that you recover quicker from a session. My calves aren't as tight afterwards. So um, is it easier? No, because you're going to go harder. You're going to put in the same effort, but you might maybe go a little bit quicker. Um, I haven't tried and tested that. I wore the, the, there was a first version without a carbon plate that I did wear in Dublin in 2018. And I always found that my calves just, normally I'd have really tight calves towards the end of a marathon. And if I wore those, my calves didn't lock up. They were certainly a bit bouncier. And my dad has a photo of me finishing the women's mini marathon that year. And I'm coming off a bridge and I am miles in the air because these, lovely magic shoes and um, they've brought the times down I mean there's no question about it there was a quota of 80 athletes for the women's marathon for um, Sapporo for Tokyo um, they didn't think they that they would get the 80 with a 229.30 they had 40 places they said roughly 40 will get 229.30 when they did the maths and 40 will get this qualification point system and lo and behold they're at They've got the 80 now through the 229.30. The only method of getting into the Olympics is coming top 10 in the major or um, running a 229.30. So th it, that would have been about 232 in my day pre-shoes. So it's definitely, they've brought that, originally they were called the 4%. They've brought that level of, you know, but it's a level playing field because everyone's wearing them. So I can't, I don't, I don't consider it cheating. And the majority of athletes will say they recover quicker from their runs with them on. Um, but would I love to go back and run Berlin 2015 wearing them? Absolutely, because I think my 232 would have gone down. <laughs> I might have broken 230 and that would be on the books. So, you know, what would John have run in, in Los Angeles? You know, yeah. so um, I, I do think maybe there should be an asterisk beside records with, with or without shoes mm. because they've had an impact on times and no one can deny that. Sonia, are you comfortable or uneasy with this situation? Um, oh, well, I think we have to move with the times, you know. Um, I'd love to know, has John Tracy ever put a pair of these shoes on him? <laughs> well, John, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, I haven't. No. no. I I, I have. Sorry, sorry. No, I I've actually worn them and um and they're fantastic. Like you know, you sometimes you feel I I and I'm sure a lot of older athletes who have run faster when they were younger and you know you maybe run a little bit now. If you wear these shoes, you actually can't keep up with the shoes. Like they make you. His <laughs> <laughs> shoes are like running down the road ahead of you, and you're trying to keep up. Your fitness level. You know, you have to regain your fitness level to be because they actually do make you run faster, and uh, and they actually feel they're so comfortable. They're really, really great. Um, I would kind of compare it to cycling. And um, when I first started cycling, I used to ride a hybrid bike, and I would go out with all these, you know, men in lycra in their light bikes and keep up and do really well. And they used to always say to me, "Wait till you get a proper bike, you'll be flying." And then eventually I got myself on a proper bike and it was so easy. It was great on the, on, you know, the light racing bike. And then I tried to go back and use my old hybrid bike and I couldn't keep up because I got, you know, you're so used to the benefits of the, the lighter, the bike that kind of throws you forward. It makes you more efficient. And it's the same with the running shoes. It makes you more efficient and you run better. And you notice with, you know, the athletes who are, you know, at such a high level, so well trained, 
if you watch how they run, when they wear any of these shoes with the plates, their legs pick up much quicker at the back. And so it just throws them forward and it just makes you more efficient. But, you know, you still need to do the training. You still need to work hard and, um, and equally as hard because, you know, you've, the, the, it's like a wave and it's moved on. You know, the, the, the times have moved on and we've all moved to a different level across the board so to keep up you still have to you know train at very high level and no matter what shoes you're wearing uh, i i might come in on on that one because what i would do is i'd reverse the decision to allow the shoes um, <laughs> and i come at, at it from the basis of track and field and the sport that we we know is man against man and uh, no advantages through manufacturing of shoes or anything, right? That's what we grew up with, and um, that's that's where you can be compared uh, over time, right? And uh, the the shoes have changed all that. It, it actually has changed all that in terms of in, in terms there is an advantage in terms of uh, percentage increase in terms of performances, right? And I just think it's a shame. It's a shame for the sport because the one thing you could do in your sport is compare, compare your athletes across generations. And I think that's, that piece has been lost. And I think it's an awful shame because a lot of the, the sport is around the history of the sport, looking at the times the athletes ran. And I, I'd be looking at this fantastic performances that Sonia ran on the track. And, uh, you, you know, like, now I know... And now let me just say one more thing on this. If I was competing today, I'd be in the shoes because you'd have to be in the shoes. You have you'd to. have to be in the shoes yeah. to compete. And that, there's, there's no doubt, if you're an athlete, you have to be in those shoes. I'm sorry, right? It mightn't be what you want to do, but that's what the Dwarf Athletics allow you to do. So that's what you would do. Okay. I, I, I would agree with John in that, you know, yeah. you have to be in the shoes now and so you have to move with the times, but you can't compare the times now to you know previous generations that there is definitely an advantage and so because of that it's more important to look at the race rather than the times and i think the times are nearly irrelevant now um because they're changing so often that you know it's not it's not a novelty anymore it's kind of like every time somebody goes out they run a fast time um so it's not exciting anymore to see people run fast it's more exciting to see a competitive race and to see people competing against each other and not worry about what's going on on the clock. Uh, just before we wrap up in this amazing conversation, Sonia Sullivan, John Tracy, and Lizzie Lee, PE in schools, we had on Taoiseach Michal Martin in uh, the studio with Joe Malloy during the week, Lizzie, uh, and we were going through the statistics. France, about 108 hours per year of PE, Austria, 102 hours, Portugal, 90 hours, Ireland, 37 hours per year, the fourth worst in Europe, especially in primary schools. Can we develop better solutions for this? Because this, to me, seems like a public health issue in the, in the next few decades, a bit like smoking. If we have uh, unfished children and sedentary lifestyles, and we don't have a grasp of this situation, which is, I was in Rio, I was lucky enough to be covering the games. All I saw in Rio was active people. People Now, they've got the weather, thank, to be fair to say that, but they were active, they were running, everybody was out. It's something that we need to address, I think. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm a, I'm a mother, a uh, six-year-old, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So I have a senior infant in school. Um, she's in a wonderful school. They do the Daily Mile. She's actually being coached by her daddy in GAA right now, which is why my house is so quiet. They're all gone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my mother has the other two. Um, but, 
yeah, it's it's definitely a problem, and um, I, a lot of it lies with the parents. Monkey see, monkey do. If the parents get out and the kids see the parents active, certainly it needs to come from the top though as well. I mean, it needs to be a priority in the education system because, you know, I'll never forget uh, when I was in sixth year in school, a report was published and I, it was the Minister for Education, who I think was Micheál Martin at the time, who came out and said that they had seen that leaving certs who played sport performed better in the leaving cert than those who didn't because they had to be organised and prioritise and everything. And I remember I used to have basketball at lunchtime on a Saturday, so I used to get all my homework done on Saturday mornings. Um, and I think there needs to be that, that, that it's not just good for you, it's, it's good for everything. It's, it's all encompassing. We talk about wellness and mindfulness, well, physical education is just so important and it's easy to do with the kids. This is what, where the frustration, where I get frustrated. It's so easy. I mean, I, I see them down there and they go around, they take the kids for a daily mile and it's just around the block and they have to have three teachers around the block and they watch them all and it, you know, and it's brilliant. And the kids are so excited afterwards. Um, it has to be fun. Everything with exercise has to be fun for kids. You make it too serious, they're just going to balk and not do it. And, um, you know, you see that with the attrition rates for kids, but girls between primary school and secondary school, they walk away from the sport because it's not cool or they're embarrassed or it gets too serious and they're just not, not up for it. So it has to be made fun. But, they, you know, those hours for PE, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's bad. No one can stand over those and say, yeah, we're prioritizing our kids yeah. health and well-being we're not um and and you know it, it you you can see it and as you said you know other countries it's just the norm it's just what happens so why are we not following suit why are we not putting that investment into it because it will pay off in dividend it'll pay in spades in the yeah. end because we'll have a healthier population we'll keep people out of hospitals in the next few decades exactly my point yeah yeah why can't we have uh like officers going around as joe was saying to Michal martin like into schools pe officers and that it's not all down to one teacher in primary schools john it seems like a, a thing that is a simple solution and obviously there's politics involved all this kind of thing but it has to happen it's an, an actually urgent thing yeah i look, i i think that i heard Michal martin um and obviously it's it's something that we would have been advocating for many many years uh, around PE in school and the need for the need for it as well in terms of uh, having having that time during the course of the school day where it's an integral part of the school day and it's as important as the reading and the writing and the math right it is uh, because what we're doing is is teaching children life skills now. I think the piece that really, and it's really important in primary school and secondary school, the piece that's really important here is the non-sporty kids, right? The sporty kids get lots of opportunity and the sporting organisations have stepped up and, and filled a vacuum and, got, and gone into the schools and getting the kids out participating. But for not everyone can kick a football or hurl or... or uh, so for a lot of, a lot of children, they've they're not really competitive and they don't want to be in, in the competitive aspect and but that's not what pcp should be about it should be about it should be about learning the skills so that they can gain confidence so they can participate in any activity or sport that keeps them physically active and i think that's 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 an important piece and and obviously it comes down to the school day and and that and and that 
and having the skills within 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 the, within the within the schools. But I agree, it is real uh, for us. It's a real priority uh, in terms of sports policy, and uh, it's beyond. Uh, obviously, it's the Department of Education in terms of responsibility, but. In terms of the health of the nation and, and teaching, uh, you have those skills forever that you learn in primary school and secondary school. And you, but again, what I would actually say, and I'll, I'll touch on it, Lizzie touched on it, the parents. You know, we see so many cases of parents writing notes to get the kids out of PE and all that type of thing. Like it is, parents do need to lead by example as well. And uh, so it, it's a combination of the system and the parents as well in terms of making sure the kids are getting the physical activity and the children are getting the physical activity during, during the week. And, but look, I totally and utterly agree. Uh, the, the hours in primary school particularly are, are inadequate in my view. And Sonia, your daughter Sophie's doing so well uh, at the moment and we saw you in Sydney. We want to see the next Sonia Sullivan in the next 20 years or 30 years. And that's only going to happen if we up our game in terms of younger people whether they have ability or not, getting more active. Yeah, I think, you know, we're in a generation now where, you know, the children, they don't walk to school anymore. They don't walk anywhere. You know, you get driven everywhere. And that's, you know, what causes a lot of this attention on the lack of PE hours because we need them even more. Whereas before kids were active at, you know, going to school, coming home from school at lunchtime, there was always this kind of natural activity that children were involved with and, now they have, you know, more screens in front of them and so less kind of normal daily activity. Um, so you nearly have to double the PE time. And I would think the PE time probably hasn't changed much since when, when I was going to school. And that's the big thing that we need to look at and try and improvise it. I know when, um, so my two daughters, Kira and Sophie, they went to school in England and they also went to Australia and there was always some level of sporting activity every day and whether it was in school hours, lunchtime or after school, there was, all, you, there was a, never a day that they didn't have to bring their PE kit. And so, like Lizzie said, you know, being involved with sport, like everybody had to do some level of sport. So you, everybody had to be organized to bring their PE gear with them. And it does teach you organizational skills. So it's not just about being sporty and uh, being competitive but it's just about including just physical activity in your day and you know I think you notice it with a lot of adults now there's a lot more adults being active and you know taking part in sports and that's changed you know since when I was running in the in the 80s I would run around Cove and you would know everybody who runs there was probably a handful at most like and you knew who these people were whereas now I go back to Cove and everybody's out running at all hours of the day and night. And so I think we need to bring that now down to the, the younger age groups as well. And it's just, I suppose, finding the time to do it because a lot of the parents are quite busy. And, you know, now the kids can't just go to the sport by themselves, which is what we did when we were younger. You just headed off by yourself, whereas now the parents have to take them there. They have to wait with them and take them home. So it, it's a lot of time out of the day and it's just how to, I suppose, get around that and somehow make the kids more independent to be able to do it and to make things safer so that children can go and be a part of the sport that they want to be involved with or the activities that they want to be involved with on competitive or recreational levels and, and keep it fun that this is what they want to do. And, you know, they want to get out there, be active and, 
and benefit from it. Yeah, and, and just to say, John, there's, oh, and Tanya touched upon it, there's a sport out there for everyone. Uh, you know, like in, when we were growing up, there the might have been a club uh, in the town five miles away that you, that you, you ran for or what have you. Uh, but there's a lot more clubs around. There's a lot more sports available now to children. And what I'd always say to children, there's a, there's a club out there for everyone. And, and take your time in picking your, picking your sport. And, and the bottom line here is, is whatever you do, enjoy it. And that's the key component. And we, we've done a piece of research around teenage girls. And it is, for them, it is about enjoyment. And it is that social connection piece and not having that, for a lot of them, not having that big competitive piece to it so it is making sure there's a range of sports out there that 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 they feel welcomed by the club and they can do it in a, in a fun enjoyable way enjoy is crucial and just to finish we love what we do we love seeing you uh get to the olympic games all three of you lizzie you're still running you're competitively are, are you still out and about are you pounding the pavements I am pounding the pavements because I have three small children and there was a pandemic and it was the only way I could stay sane. <laughs> um, I am seen on the straight road in Cork at approximately 7.15 every single morning. Um, yeah, I, I'm running competitively. There's, I, I hadn't planned for Tokyo because I had a third baby, very much planned for the third child and it ran into Tokyo and then Tokyo was postponed by a year. But my, my, and John said it earlier, my older body just said no to the huge miles early on postpartum land. So I just couldn't get the training for a marathon done. And there was a pandemic and there was nobody to mind the children. So that was very tough in terms of there was no babysitters, no grannies, no, no one um, other than me and my husband who was working from home. So um, I'm running and I'm just getting into some sort of decent shape. So, and I think we're going to see some races in the next few weeks and Sport Ireland are going to be kind to us and uh, <laughs> so watch this space uh, and I'll see what happens and uh, and hopefully there's another green jersey because hopefully we'll get a European cross country in December in Dublin. The best, the best look with that. John, are you still running? Yes, uh, I still run a little bit. I have to manage my knees as I, as I call it. Uh, I'm biking and uh, I do a little bit of biking and uh, I've been on Swift all, all, all winter long and that keeps me healthy. And uh, it, it, if I'm on the bike, it means that I'm, I'm out running as well because the, the, obviously the bike helps the knees and you can, you can run then. But if I wasn't doing the bike, I wouldn't be running. It's as simple as that. So a combination of, combination of both. And I also obviously enjoy, enjoy enjoy walking a bit as well and we have loads of forests around where I live and I really enjoy that as well but the bike and running and, and a, a bit of walking then on the recovery days and Sonia I know by reading the Irish Times that you're still well active <laughs> yes I, I keep fit and uh, I like John I combine a bit of cycling and running running is always the number one because it's, it's very efficient and time efficient you know yeah. you can get in and out very quickly this, the bike can take a bit of time um, and I've also been doing a bit of gym work, so I find that really helps to build up the strength and uh, and you know avoid injuries, which is you know what we're you do that whatever level of uh, running or competing you're involved with, um, more so when you're older to help you to be stronger and to get out there and 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 just enjoy it because a day without you know a, any kind of activity, even going for a walk, is kind of a it's it's a sad day. 
Well, we have to leave it there. John Tracy, Lizzie Lee and Sonia Sullivan, you've been so good to give your time for Off the Ball on the Saturday panel. Thank you so much for being an inspiration to so many people in this country of Ireland and keep moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 